holy sweet mother of God shit. Hello, hello, hello. What, what, the, what the hell are you doing? I hope no one's eating dinner. The next best thing, every Monday night from 10 until midnight on Radio Free Brooklyn. Fun for everyone except for dear Jesus. Something like that. Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No! But it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Or go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff. Usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write it's more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall. You can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something something to keep us in business if you like what you hear tonight well a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that uh if you feel so inclined you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt again that's rfb.nyc slash nbt oh man that was exhausting wasn't it it was for me i'm sure it was for you too so that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. I feel good. I feel good. Though I know I've done no wrong, I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. Though I know I've done no wrong, I feel good. I feel bad, so bad. Though I ain't done nothing wrong, I feel bad. I feel bad. So bad Though I ain't done nothing wrong I feel bad Oh yeah, how's that for some whaling saxophone for you on a Monday night? So that was A Feel Guild by Marianne Faithful from her album Broken English. 
and I played it tonight for you because it's very, it's very relevant to my life. Here's a story of a lovely lady. No, not the goddamn Brady Bunch. Much more dark than that. So here's the thing. It's the holiday season and everyone's having parties and, uh, and all that lovely stuff. And the other night, a friend of mine was having a party and it was, you know, a bunch of us from work and great time, great time. Good time was had by all. But a friend of mine was there who was kind of, you know, casually seeing another friend of ours. And uh, this friend of mine, we, you know, we're pretty good friends. We make fun of each other. We tease each other. We kind of razz each other in various ways. And uh, so at the party, he, people were having drinks. People were having a good old time, including yours truly. And at one point, I went back to grab something in this other room, and I saw the girl he's, you know, casually seeing. And she was just kind of, they were, you know, she was in a group. She was having a casual, flirtatious conversation with someone else, someone we knew. And it was innocent. I mean, of course it was innocent. And whatever. Didn't really think much about it. But at one point, I think I saw him, like, you know, kiss her on the cheek or something. Big deal. No big deal. Thought nothing of it. Then I go back into the main room and I see my friend who's seeing her. And I think I just kind of, you know, half casually slash half drunkenly said as a joke, hey, boy, you know, you better be careful. So-and-so's in there and he might swoop in and steal your girl. Now, it wasn't a funny joke. I will tell you that right now. And I was, you know, I'd had a few drinks. And it was so meaningless. It was meaningless. I thought he would be like, I thought he would, I don't know what the fuck I thought he would say. I didn't think he would react at all. It was a stupid thing to say. It was a stupid joke said by a stupid person. But his reaction was one of great concern. He was very concerned. And he was very, he did not think it was funny. And he reacted, you know, I had had a few drinks, I and I thought that surely he had too. I thought he reacted this way because he had had a few drinks. Anyway, long story short, he went in the other room to check it out and kind of was very, you know, uneasy about it. He asked the girl about it. She was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And the whole thing ended up making her very uncomfortable because she was like, what are you talking? Like, first of all, we're casually dating. Don't be possessive and jealous. Number one. Number two, this nothing happened. And I will tell you, me, Jonathan, nothing did happen. I made that. I mean, you know, I said that from the jump. It was casual. It was innocent. It was nothing. I was making a dumb joke to my dumb friend. I mean, it was nothing. Jump ahead here with me. His reaction really bothered her. I guess it may, must have triggered something in her. They are not doing well. Their relationship has taken a downward spiral <sighs> since this whole night. And I feel, as the song said, I feel guilt. Though I'm not sure I did anything wrong, I feel guilt. And I do. I really do. <laughs> because my friend is really torn up about it. And it's like, Jesus, did I do this? I mean, let's be honest, it was his reaction that did, you know, upset her. 
But had I not made the dumb, meaningless, needless joke, he wouldn't have reacted that way. And then it went, I just don't know. Maybe it was inevitable. Who knows? But the bottom line is I do feel badly because I have a heart. I have a soul. And these are, you know, he was really upset about it. Not like angry. He was hurt. You could tell he was hurt. And I, you know, it breaks my heart to see someone with a broken heart. What can I say? I'm a, I'm a softy, I guess. Anywho. That's how I'm feeling on this rainy, nasty, cold Monday. But I have some good news. We have a great guest plan for tonight. You've probably seen one, if not both, of the big, hugely popular documentaries on the Fire Festival. Oh, yeah. The infamous, torturous, unsuccessful Fire Festival debacle. There's one on Netflix. It's called Fire, the greatest party that never happened. And there's another one on Hulu called Something Else. But um, they both are on the same subject. And tonight, my guest is Mark Weinstein. He is prominently featured in the Netflix documentary. He opted not to partake in the Hulu documentary for reasons we'll get into when he joins us. I'll be very interested to talk to him about his experience, how he got involved, uh, what it was like, what life has been like since. But also, what I'm really kind of curious to talk with him about is kind of the psychology behind it all. Because the, you know, we live in a time where a lot of big time con artists, huge major scale fraudsters like um, Bernie Madoff, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, uh, that girl, Anna Delvey, or I guess her real name is Anna Sorkin. She, I don't know how the hell this happened, but she came to New York City and was basically living like a socialite, like a really rich young girl socialite, bouncing from expensive luxury hotel to expensive luxury hotel, never paying the bills. And apparently she was just making up her life story. I don't even know. But I'm very interested to get some insight from Mark, who was there up close and personal with one of the biggest fraudsters of all, Billy McFarland, who was the founder and CEO of FIRE and has been subsequently exposed as just a big time fraudster, a con artist. And uh, so, yeah, I'll be very interested to talk with him about that. He'll be calling into the show a little bit later. In the meantime, we will go over what's been going on in the news, what's been going on in the world. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Here's what's making news tonight. All right, yes, here is what's making news tonight in the big time. So, this past weekend was SantaCon, that absolutely horrible thing that no one in New York actually likes or can even stand for that matter, but that just keeps on happening for some goddamn reason. If you ran into any Santas on the street, I am sorry for that. But alas, you know, I mentioned how the impeachment is not being treated very you know, seriously by the Republican leadership. And 
that topic was discussed on The View, naturally, as it would be. Now, we don't talk about The View very much on this show, but, you know, in general, I like The View. I think it's a good show. I like the women on it. They're smart. They're, you know, whatever. It's a good show. And I respect Megan McCain. I really do, and I think it is important to have some, you know, disparate voices on that show. Who wants to watch a show where everyone just agrees and echoes each other? It wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be, you know, whatever. What's the point of that? But she does, she gets so, I don't want to use the word emotional because I know that when you, you know, call women emotional, it's very degrading and kind of belittling. But she does. She gets really worked up. She's just immature. You know, today, when they were talking about the impeachment proceedings, it doesn't matter really what they were talking about because it happens all the time. Megan McCain once again put her kind of immaturity on full display and Whoopi Goldberg, our girl, the whoopster, she had had enough. She had had enough. It's so interesting, you know, you see Whoopi on that show. She's always trying to kind of keep the order. They talk over each other, which is just you know, the cardinal rule of radio and television, don't talk over each other. No one can hear you if it's people talking over each other. And yet they do it all the time. She tries to keep the peace, to let everyone get their thoughts and words in. But today she had had enough. Take a listen. So this is Sunny Houston. She's talking, she's giving a, her viewpoint on something. And then you'll hear Megan McCain come in. You can't miss it. And uh, things kind of go awry from there. And I think we also have to um, compare the, the, the Senate vote before. You had so many so many senators that voted to not only impeach, but also convict President Clinton for, yes, perjuring himself. Yes. Those same, many of those same people are still in the Senate. I cannot believe that they would vote to impeach and convict a, a president, a sitting president, for perjuring himself, and they would not vote to convict a president and remove, who and remove a president who clearly used a foreign, wanted to use a foreign government for his own personal benefit to impede our very democracy. Right. That is the height of hypocrisy for this Republican-led right. Senate. But I, my job I don't here, understand that. My job right. here is not to litigate the ethics of it. I'm an ABC political analyst along with being a VIEW co-host. My job is to analyze the politics of it. And I'm telling you but the I'm politics of this. But I'm not talking about this, you. I'm talking about I, the I'm people you my that job are, are here. the senators that finish. are in the, let you talk. Uh, let me in the Senate. The Republican so Senate. Here's what's happening you now. We're going to show keep, ever. Girl, please stop talking. Please stop talking right now. Because you know what? No What's happening? Thank you. No problem. Thank you. I won't talk the rest of the show. No okay, problem. Okay, that's. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. If you're going to behave like this, I'm not behaving like you anything. are. I'm you are to talking over perspective. Yes, we understand no, I'm that. No, I'm talking. But you she... are. But what you're doing? No, I'm not. Is your so I... We're not doing anything. How about this? Former FBI. We'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I will. You know when you. When I play that, when you hear that clip out of context and alone, it does actually kind of sound like Megan is getting the raw end of the deal because, you know, you hear Sonny give her opinion, then Megan tries to come in and she gets cut off. But you have to understand she is constantly cutting people off. She's And it's like, you know, if Whoopi does that, if Whoopi does just kind of move on quickly, there's a reason for it. She's her job 
is the moderator. She's the moderator of that show. She has to keep them on time. She has to keep the conversation moving. And if she just abruptly cuts someone off to move on to the next topic, it's not because she's being a bitch. It's not because she wants to shut someone up. It's because they have to keep going. They are on a tight schedule. And Megan, for her to be like, oh my God, okay, no problem. Okay, I, just, I, I won't talk for the rest of the show. Okay, I'll just be quiet. Okay, well, fine. It's like, are you five? I mean, seriously, and, and she says she says stuff like that all the time, all the time. And it's like, who wants to deal with that? Nobody wants to deal with that. It's really kind of difficult to listen to. It's important to get, you know, varying points of view in. That's the whole point of that godforsaken show. But when you're on there... And you get all touchy and you act like, what, you don't want to agree with me? Well, then I just, I'm just never going to talk again. It's like, you know, we can hear you, right? You sound ridiculous. And Whoopi had just had enough of that goddamn bullshit. She'd had enough of the goddamn bullshit. All right. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back in, we will welcome our guest, Mark Weinstein of the Fire festival fame and much more we'll get to know him as well all right you're listening to the next best thing and that's all and okay we'll be back radio free brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy education and free expression we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you so, if you'd like to support our mission so we can continue to bring you quality community radio, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. You can donate as little as a dollar, and every cent helps. Helps us to continue to stay on the air. So, please, please help support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. And remember, RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit, so your contribution is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Again, that's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. This is the next best thing. Yes, this is the next best thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Now, before I bring in our guest, Mark Weinstein, I want to give just a little bit of background. So almost everyone has heard about the infamous Fire Festival debacle at this point. But what often gets lost in the shuffle is uh, the fact that Fire originated as an app. It was designed to book talent and artists, you know, kind of high-end talent and artists that would normally be very hard to book, very hard to reach, very hard to get in contact with. It's a great idea in theory, but it's a shame that it's kind of gone to the wayside. But the fact that it was a good idea, I think that's why there was a whole team of engineers, product designers, and web developers working on it here in New York while the whole festival went on. The festival was actually a way to promote and market the app. Now, my guest tonight is Mark Weinstein, who you may remember from the Netflix documentary Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. He's referred to in the documentary as a music festival consultant, but he actually does much more than that. I, he spent a number of years working as an investment banker, I believe, at Morgan Stanley. He's produced his own music festivals called 90s Fest. Most recently, he's moved into venture capital. He's also kind of a yoga guru. He's kind of a modern-day renaissance man. And we're very happy to welcome Mark to the show tonight. Mark, thanks so much for making time and calling in. Oh, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. So tell me if I have this right. You first heard about FIRE 
at a music festival conference in Las Vegas, and you were kind of suspicious immediately. Yeah, exactly. Um, the conference was called X Live. It's kind of a uh, it's an industry conference for festival and event organizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my partner, one of my partners from a company called Prime Social Group, which is an independent event company in, in the Midwest, was on stage with Ja Rule. And Ja Rule announced fire to the audience. And actually, if you watch the documentary, my partner is, is there when Ja announces it and kind of has a little bit of a skeptical grin on his face. Um, so, yeah, so we uh, we were a bit skeptical of, of the the grandiose vision on, on such a short timeline. Right. That's, that's what kind of stood out to me. What gave everybody pause was actually the ignorance and kind of arrogance he had about what it took to put on a successful music festival, which obviously he didn't know. And none of them really knew. Yeah. I think there's, there's something about event planning. And I was speaking to um, a fellow festival producer although I don't really do that anymore. Um, actually, this this weekend, he just produced a huge festival in Las Vegas um, with Amazon. But we were we were chatting about just what it takes, right? The, the 24-7 grind leading up to an event. Everything that Ken Go Wrong usually does. Mm-hmm. And it's happening, it's all happening live. And there's real, you know, people in attendance at risk. So it's not like you can launch some kind of minimum viable product as a software company and then bug fix. It's all, you know, shut it down and, and fix it. It's all happening live. So I think people kind of lose sight of that. And event production seems like a really simple business, especially when you attend an event and everything's going so smoothly. So you take it for granted what's happening behind the scenes. Um, but in fact, it's it's really challenging and things go wrong quite often. Yeah. And it's just watching the documentary. I know having planned like benefit concerts and just directed kind of theatrical productions that with so many people involved, there are things that get forgotten. There are things that get overlooked. There are so many moving parts and that's with, you know, one production with a music festival. You have all these different acts to kind of get into place. It to try and do it arbitrarily is just, it's, I don't understand how it ever seemed like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I, and like I said, you know, it happens often, I think with events, um, that successful individuals in other fields think that they can just step in and produce a, a you know a kick-ass event, and oftentimes they're they're surprised by the difficulty of it. Not to mention, right? This is on a this is on a remote I- island in a foreign country, um, with all of its nuance um, dealing with the laws and, and customs and the way things are run over there, mm-hmm. um, and it's not a festival that you attend and leave you have to stay there. So there's all this other logistics that go into, you know, producing an event like this, uh, besides even just the, what's happening on stage and around the stage. Right. So how did they change your mind and get you involved? I, I know your friend produced the promo video and you were impressed that they sold out so quickly, but what actually got you on the team? Yeah, it was, it was actually, uh, a few, you know, a couple of events, um, for starters, you nailed it. A friend of mine produced um, the promo video, and I remember it was probably in January or February meeting with him in New York, uh, and we were just catching up, and we started chatting about this. And I was like, "So what? You know, what's going on? Are are they real? Like, you know, the video was obviously really well produced, 
and they clearly had a huge budget for it. And he was like, yeah, they're real. They, you know, they sold out two weekends in a row. And so for a festival producer, as much as we're talking about how hard, you know, the event production side of it is, and it is very challenging, what's even harder for a first year festival is to actually, you know, sell out your full capacity of tickets. Mm-hmm. And so to hear that they had done that two weeks in a row and also to see kind of the budget behind the production video, I'm thinking, okay, these guys, you know, they might, they might know something, um, that I don't. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting just how it also depends on where you are in your life. So at that time in my life, I was, you know, working on my second startup nineties fest, which was kind of teetering on the edge of failure. And I was just looking for an opportunity just like this one, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a big opportunity to kind of make, you know, make a splash. And, uh, another friend of mine who, the one who actually ultimately introduced me to Billy was, um, working for a well-established venture capital fund. um, and, you know, they were exploring a pretty meaningful investment into, into fire the app. And the idea that I had was, well, if I can help them pull this off, potentially I could be an executive at this, you know, this music booking app, which was trying to disintermediate all of the, all of the, um, value extracting parties in the chain of, of booking talent. Right. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. So your, your involvement with the festival was kind of like, a an introduction to the company. It was like, yeah, I treated it almost like an interview, right? It was like a dating period where I would get to know them. They would get to know me. Um, we worked together and then potentially I would join, um, the other company, gotcha. uh, which the festival was using to promote. So it was kind of this, like, you know, a number of factors. One, I just was in this tough position in, in my life, you know, kind of with, uh, with 90s best kind of teetering on the edge. And I was looking for that life vest, so to speak. Two, they had sold out the festival. And then three, I really had I had a high quality introduction to the founder and a, and a lot of reason to believe that um, that he was you know, a legitimate business operator. Right. Well, it's interesting you bring up the fact that, you know, because they sold out, which is honestly, it is, you know, getting people, getting people to go anywhere, not to mention spend money and take a whole weekend is often the hardest part. And they did that very quickly and very well. But I noticed, you know, it seemed to me that they focused on that before booking any acts, before like actually securing a location. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, they had just, I think by the time the, the promo video came out, they had just gotten um, their spot on Exumas. And before that they were, they were trying to be at this remote Island, um, which was previously owned by Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. And the irony of all that is like, you know, it's this small Island that's pretty much uninhabitable. Right. Um, you need to do substantial production to even make it someplace to visit. And Not to mention it doesn't have a dock. So you have to ship all the equipment via plane. So it just logistically didn't make much sense. And all the while, he's um, he's pawned booking the axe off on this young guy who works back at the media company who says in the documentary, you know, I'm 20-some years old. I've never booked anything. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's definitely important. I think, you know, they, they, they were able to secure some big acts. However, I definitely think one of, one of the one of the questions that I often get is like, was it just an outright scam? And the answer is no. I mean, they yeah. spent probably somewhere between five and $10 million just on artist deposits. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, that's, that's the issue, right? If you're, if you're a new festival producer or promoter and you're just kind of cold calling agencies or getting introduced to them and you have a huge marketing campaign, all they see is dollar sign. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing they weren't getting, you know, the best deals on talent buys. That's for sure. Right. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show, we live in this time when a number of big time con artists and fraudsters are really being exposed. I mean, people like Lou Perlman, who formed and managed the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC before stealing all their money and going to jail, Bernie Madoff, Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos story, and now Billy McFarland. And I'm really interested, yeah. kind of fascinated with the whole psychology of it all. So, okay, so let's give some background. So Billy McFarland was known as this young kind of genius entrepreneur guy who started companies like Magnesis, which was an elite charge card for millennials, which later also was exposed as kind of a scam, and Fire Media. And uh, so when you first met Billy, you, you said it was over the phone, but what kind of was your initial impression of him? Was he warm and inviting and did he seem trustworthy and all that stuff? Um, it's, it's so hard to go back in time right. to that moment, which is now you know, over two and it's almost two and a half years and to give a, an accurate assessment of how I felt about Billy knowing what I know. Yeah. That's true. Um, that's what I would say. Like, I'd love to be able to say like, yeah, you know, I, I thought he, I, I didn't think he was trustworthy or, or I thought he was, but I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, I thought that, I guess what I could say is that I thought he was, more, he was capable, right? Because he had gotten that far. He had executed, um, with his previous company to the best of my knowledge. And he had gotten himself into this position with FireApp where he had some of the, you know, the biggest investors in the world taking him very seriously. Um, and, and so that, you know, in and of itself, plus some of the people that he had around him led me to believe, okay, he's legitimate. If nothing else, you know, he has, he has the dollars backing him to be able to pull this off. Right. And he did seem, I mean, between the crew he had in New York working at Fire Media and the huge team down on the island working, you know, on the ground on the festival, he was able to fool a lot of people. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, some by keeping them just totally in the dark, but then, then you think about guys like, you know, Andy King and, you know, he's become kind of famous for saying how he was, how far he was willing to go. <laughs> <laughs> did you know Andy? Like, did you guys work, were you guys working hand in hand? Yeah, I was working with Andy. And he's, uh, and he's a great guy. Yeah. And he's also, you know, he's famous for saying what he would have done to get the water released, but really, I mean, he's a premier event planner all over the country and he, I mean, here's, I want to play a quick thing that he says kind of towards the beginning of the documentary. Yeah. And then we can react to it. Could you imagine trying to host a music festival, even in Miami beach or in Boston or LA almost impossible without an incredible big infrastructure. So dial it up to a small island of the Bahamas, uh, it'd probably be the most difficult place you could possibly do it. Billy called me and he said, listen, um, I need your help and I need you to get to the Bahamas as soon as possible. To do a proper music festival, I would say you should try to start the, the, the design and the fundraising and everything at least 12 months out. The true core team that came in literally had six to eight weeks to build this thing and put it together. All right. So in hindsight, it's easy to hear that and think, okay, wait. So with your knowledge and with, you know, you know how long it would take, 
why didn't you stop it right there or at least not get involved? But he did, you know, Andy in particular seemed to have this real kind of steadfast loyalty to Billy. Can you talk about that? Like, did Billy have that effect on people? Um, I don't know if Billy had that effect on everyone. Uh, I don't know that there was a steadfast loyalty to Billy so much as, um, a steadfast, a a, a dedication and a work ethic towards just trying to solve problems and get things done. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Andy, you know, Andy and a few others knew Billy beforehand and had, had a stronger relationship with him and knew him as this kind of young, you know, young, um, thoughtful entrepreneur. Uh, but for the rest of the production team, I think it was just, we have tasks and let's try to get them done. And, you know, by the time, by the time I got to the event, like I landed on Exuma's, uh, like the first weekend in April, mm-hmm. the event was scheduled for May 7th and there were probably like five or six full-time production staff that were already living on the island, but it was unclear just how long, you know, they had all been working there. And it was already kind of presented as like, this is a mess. You know, you're the re- one of the reasons why you're coming in. Same with Andy, right? Like one of the reasons why you're coming in is to try to help. Save this. Yeah. Save it, fix it. Right. Make, make an event happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what our mission was, right? Like make any event happen. Right. And, and so, you know, we, we had a sense that it was going to be very, very challenging. But doable. Potentially. Well, I'm sure you get asked all the time and, you know, people kind of see the documentary. And again, it's easy with hindsight to be like, well, why didn't you leave? Why would you have stayed and worked with Billy that whole time? But people don't understand, I imagine, that with huge events like this, everyone has their own job to do and their own little silo that they're focusing on. And it can be tough to see the overall picture. That said, there are a few individuals at the top, Billy, chief among them, who everyone reports to and whose job it is to see the overall picture. So with that in mind, it it seems like they had every reason to know that this was not going to work. Was that fair to say? Mm. They did. I think I think that they believe that it was going to work in some way. Right. Like they could make it work. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kept, I, I would keep on having conversations with these about these issues that seemed insurmountable and it would just be like, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And at a certain point, I think like, the, you know, it's fake until you make it. Or yeah. Don't take no for an answer. You mentioned a number of other startup scams. Like I'm pretty, I'm fairly confident that Elizabeth Holmes went into Theranos thinking that she could solve that problem. Oh, sure. Sure. Right. And so that's, that's kind of, I think the the problem is these, and Adam Newman, right. Went into WeWork thinking that he was going to change the world. Right. Um, not thinking he was just going to, you know, create a bunch of overinflated <laughs> rental agreements. Right. So it's, um, it's hard to say if they knew or not, especially because they were inexperienced, but where right. I think they dropped the ball. And I think it's a good lesson for other entrepreneurs is if you surround yourself with experts, you have to listen to the experts. That's right. right? Yeah. See, that's what I, that's what I kind of meant. Like, I don't think Billy or anyone grant any of those people kind of up on that top tier necessarily like went in thinking, well, this is, you know, a scam. We'll just get people's money. I don't think that was the vision, but like, you know, one kind of character, I guess you could say from the documentary who stood out to me is Keith. The, key, the German pilot who 
Do you remember who I'm talking about? Did you meet Keith? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I didn't know him. He was actually there right before me. Okay. So he met, apparently he met, met Billy randomly on vacation and he somehow ended up being the head of logistics. And it looked like, you know, he t- took that job very seriously. And very early on, he made it known that, you know, there wasn't sufficient plumbing. There wasn't enough space on the island for the number of people they were expecting. And it was, you know, yeah. just the conditions weren't livable. And the response was, you're fired. Yeah. And well, they, they did change islands. So they, they, they moved the island after that. Was um, that? And fired him. Right. But was it typical if anyone, anyone who kind of presented challenges, were they just kind of kicked off the team? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty standard. I think, I think another thing that was referenced in the documentary was this fire scam website that popped up right so there was like somebody was was sending footage from the island and and the conversations that were clearly internal out to some website that was saying this is a scam don't go really accurately in the end right but how did you feel um, about that at the time though well we we had an all-hands meeting pretty quickly which was kind of like a little bit of a witch hunt Uh um and the the kind of explicit statement was, if we find out this is you, we're going to be coming after you legally. So there was a little bit of this, you know, mom's the word on external communications from that point forward. I think that's... But did you think like, well, what they're saying is accurate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um. All right, so three to four weeks before the festival were to, was to happen, you got put in charge of booking housing for influencers, production staff, investors, and press. Now, were you aware at that point that uh, the type of lodging that those people, as well as festival attendees, had been promised, were you aware that they didn't actually exist? No. So I basically, when I went down that first weekend, um, I thought I was going to be stepping in in kind of a more high-level um, position, right? Just evaluating the overall picture and helping them solve those types of high-level problems. Uh-huh. But it became clear that they had a lot of generals and not a lot of soldiers. And so, you know, I have experience with Excel because I was a banker, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I basically like walk into a room because it's my first weekend there, and there's a small group of individuals going through a spreadsheet. Um, and the spreadsheet is a list of of accommodations. I'm like, let me help you. I sit down and I end up taking over the spreadsheet and I start fixing things up, whatever. And, and the person who was at the time running it, um, she was like, oh, you, I didn't realize you can do this, like whatever. And it, it became, it ended up becoming my role because I was started managing this spreadsheet. And when I first started the task, the, the assignment was we have 400 individuals that need beds um, on the island and they're going to be living off site. And so that was so, supposedly something like 150 influencers and then 150 staff production, whatever. And then 100, you know, press media investors. Um, after about, you know, again, the timelines are blurry because it, it was just moving really fast. But after about a week, as I'm crunching the numbers, it becomes obvious that that number is higher. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're simultaneously trying to gather as much inventory as possible and also live updating the numbers. In the end, it ended up being 1,200 people um, that needed beds. And 
uh, you know, we're talking about an island with like a population of three to five thousand, depending on on how you know who you ask. It's the busiest week of right. the year. Um, so that's kind of when I started really panicking. And you know, the regular conversation was, we don't need this many people. Right. Another part that people forget is that there was a second weekend. We have a second weekend. You know, worst case scenario, they can go to the second weekend. You can refund them whatever you need to do. But there's not enough beds, right? We were talking about we had a shipment of like 300 air mattresses <laughs> that were coming coming through um, that ended up getting held up at the last custom shipment. Right. So they, there were ideas that were thrown out of like flying staff back and forth to hotels in Nassau because they were on credit at this hotel and on credit at with the private jet company is my estimate because they didn't have to pay for it. So after the fact, so, you know, we're talking about like this massive logistics operation of, of literally flying people to, to and from the island around the clock. Yeah. Like you got a cruise ship with seven days until the festival. That was another, another, you know, potential fix, but it was only a 250 person cruise ship and it turned out to be 20 feet too long for the dock. We almost got the, the dock master to let us put it there, but it ended up being moored off the island. That was just another logistics thing, doing running a whole tender operation. Um, so yeah, there were just so many moving pieces, right? And the first time that I really was like, oh, wow, this is complete BS was when I had my first call with the influencers, I started, I took it upon myself to start just canceling people. Yeah. I was like, hey, like, you know, you really can't, shouldn't come. Like, and they all hated me. Um, they were like, who is this guy? I haven't heard a voice. They hadn't heard a voice since that January when they posted their orange squares on Instagram. And then they hear me and I'm telling them they should, you know, the accommodations aren't what they were promised and they shouldn't come and telling them basically what the accommodations are going to be, which was shared rooms, air mattresses. And they were like, they were like, I was promised, uh, you know, a villa on the beach with two of my friends. And I was just like, okay. Now these were influencers. So these were people that were actually getting a free, I mean, they were being paid to come down pretty much. Like it was all free for them, right? Yeah. It was meant to be all free for them in exchange for them having posted this orange square for the marketing campaign. Right. And then on the other end, you have people who have actually paid for these villas that have been advertised and look beautiful and luxurious that don't exist. Right. (laughs) Yeah, completely. I mean, was it ever discussed how people might react when they paid to stay in these villas and then show up to find a hurricane tent? Oh, well, so yes, 100%. But I would say, so the, the hurricane tents were separate from the, the housing. Right. right. People that bought housing were, you know, we were trying to find houses that could actually accommodate them um, that were on the beach, you know, and yeah, it was completely discussed. I mean, I think I think the biggest mistake that was made was just not communicating with the, with everyone, right? Like you had community buy-in and things were changing on the ground, and they should have just been communicated. You mean from Billy or like from from the whole you know from the whole public facing staff from PR marketing everything? Right. It seems you like know, that was the disconnect. Because it seems like they actually went on the other end of the spectrum. They were adamant about keeping everything top secret. Yeah, and and the point was eventually it's going to come out, right? Right. Because people, people are going to show up, so yeah. you can't. Yeah, and so you know they were told multiple times to cancel. I, I told them to to get rid of all this free, you know, these free guests, 
for the first weekend. It didn't make any sense. Um, but you know, they, they didn't listen. And and then it got to be almost too late. One of my favorite points, uh, my, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is when you are talking about sending an email that said, quote, I, you know, we're one day out. I've tried to warn you, but my words keep falling on deaf ears. We don't have enough beds to safely house our staff, VIP guests, or paid customers. We need to cancel more people immediately. I know you worry about press blowback, but imagine how it will be when 350 people arrive onto a remote island, are herded onto yellow school buses, brought to a festival site that's unfinished, only to realize they have nowhere to sleep and are trapped here. Now, you sent that email out, and how did they respond? <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> At least they'll see your smiling face and yoga skills. Okay, so when they said that to you, <laughs> I would have been like, what are you talking about? Like, who are you talking yeah, to? Can you hear me? <laughs> of course. But I you mean, are trapped like, at that point. You know, we're running up. We're running on no sleep. Like we're, you know, basically just, it's a moving train, right? It's a moving freight train. And you're trying to just solve a million different problems, completely understaffed, stressed on the remote island, literally with island fever. And it's just like, like, is this really happening? You can't, you can't even fathom. Like it just doesn't feel real. It feels like a dream or a nightmare. And at that point, you're kind of like, at that point, you're trapped. It's not like you can leave at that point. Well, I can't leave. I mean, in a, like you, another, it's not hilarious, but another point about the housing was that there are no addresses on this island. Oh, that's the houses right. have names. Ugh. So I'm one of two people that actually knows the map of where the houses are. One of two. And Ugh. it's, you know, it's like, how are people going to get to where they need to go? Um, if you're not there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It was crazy. I mean, even the day of, I was just getting ripped into, pulled into a million different directions, actually like physically pulled by a lot of the, you know, the admins and, and assistants to the core fire team. You know, you're only one person. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was pretty crazy. But yeah, why I, why'd I stay? I definitely have asked myself that question so many times. And but I don't know. It's like there's mission creep. This We're all in this together mentality. There's a, sense of deferral of responsibility to the authority figure. Mm -hmm. There's all these psychological factors that come into play in situations like this. Well, and I honestly, it's funny to me because I know people have asked you that. I know that keeps coming up, but that never really even occurred to me because like I said, having planned events and been part of teams like this, I know that like, you know, once you get to a certain point, you know, you're a soldier, you're doing your job. And at a certain point, you just are doing everything you can to support your colleagues and to get things done. And like you, you know, you're being told that it's going, you know, we're going to make this work. We're all positive. It's going to work out. And you're kind of like, you know, it's like, are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? And it's kind of just like, well, after you get to a certain point, it's not so much like you can just up and leave because you will be abandoning people. Completely. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely a certain level of camaraderie that's built between, I mean, our production team was, we were like family, you know, you're here living on this Island together and solving these insurmountable problems. And it's like, that's another thing, right? There's this illusion of, of progress because you, we keep solving problems. 
So there's not enough houses. Okay, we get a cruise ship. Wow, can't believe you got that cruise ship. Mm -hmm. It's like something that you plan for three months ahead of time. And everyone's like applauding. You know, it's the best thing ever. But in the end, it just keeps things moving forward. We lose our caterer and he goes and gets another caterer. Oh, we got, we can't believe it. Seven days too. We have a food solution. But all the while, right, the quality is getting degenerated. And it's just like everybody loses sight of, of the main you know, the main initiative, which was to create a great experience. For right. People. Not just fill in the, you know, blanks, not get it done. Yeah. Not get it done. Exactly. And so it, it certainly should have been canceled. I think there were multiple times that that was, that that was mentioned, you know, the head of production the day before the festival said cancel. Um, and it was just ignored. But they couldn't. You see, because now that we're knowing what we know now, isn't it, Kind of like he couldn't cancel because he couldn't refund the money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're if you're if the calculus for Billy is pretty clear, yeah. right? Like you, you're ten to twenty million dollars in the hole. There's no force majeure. There's no insurance that would cover this. The artists aren't giving you the money back for your negligence. No, and you know most of the money is gone. So if you don't have an event that's it. It's a $19 million loss. End of the story. End of the road. If you're, if you try to pull it off and you have any kind of event, you might be able to make back a few million dollars on food and beverage and, you know, sponsorship payments and things like that. Merch. Well, okay. So people arrive, shit hits the fan. Does Billy basically disappear? Uh, as far as I was concerned, yeah, he was gone. So there um, you were with this huge workforce that hadn't been paid, production staff that hadn't been paid, the Bohemian government that hadn't been paid, and a bunch of stranded festival goers. How, I know, you know, you kind of talk about in the documentary, you know, all you had to deal with and whatnot, but you were there for what, seven days after the initial arrival of these guests? Yeah, yeah. Was that in the documentary? I think so. I mean, I know there's a part where we see you like, kind of getting an earful from some of the workforce, how they, they have no money. I mean, like, didn't they strike and come down and be like, hello, like who's going to yeah. pay us? Yeah. So, I mean, there was like, you know, again, there's, it's like, why did you stay? But also there's a team of, you know, at that point it had grown to like 30 production staff, Yeah, you know, plus all of the bar staff, everyone, right. That and that poor woman, the... like a sense of camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. Marianne Roll. Right. She lived on the island. She was great. Um, you know, and so we had a mess to clean up and we basically on that guests arrived on Thursday. It was called to cancel on Thursday afternoon. No more guests would arrive. There were somewhere something like eleven hundred people on the island and we worked with the charter company to um to basically take everyone home the next day. So we spent basically all night and all day, Thursday into Friday, figuring out the quote-unquote evacuation plan. Um, you know, we had an unpaid security staff. We had um, a bunch of rich millennials um, yeah. in an insecure site with, um, you know, call it 100 local workers that hadn't been paid that were really pissed off. Dangerous. And it was possible. <laughs> it felt dangerous at the time, you know. It really did. Um I remember when, you know, the group that was protesting came down, like half of the production staff left, like all the, I mean, I, 
it's funny this day and age, like this feels sexist, but the women all left. Um, and like, Billy decided, well, Billy was already gone, but well, doesn't um, that, does that yeah. not make you mad? Cause that seems, that seems ridiculous. Yeah, of course. But like, you know, now mad, mad no. Well, but like at the time, yeah, I was like, who is this guy? Had you come Captain to expect it? The ship, right? Well, you'd think. Yeah. Well, uh, he's, you know, he's serving time. So are you surprised no one was physically hurt throughout all of this? Like be it. And I don't just mean like, you know, in the riot, someone got like punched. I mean, because of the just unlivable conditions. Yeah, it was. It was really, you know, really a stroke of luck, I think, that no one got hurt and, you know, a testament to everyone for turning it around and, and getting everyone out of there quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was, that was the, I think that was like, it's, it's weird, but that Friday, that Friday night when the last flight went off at like three in the morning, I just remember, I think it was me and my friend Isabel were like crying at the airport and it was kind of this odd strange moment of pride mm-hmm. um which, which that's like a weird thing for people i think to understand right like you just you just helped enable one of the this like huge mess um like how can you feel any sense of pride but i just felt like you know we we had worked our asses off done our best and then stuck around when we had nothing for it just to make sure that everyone got off of the island safely and I feel like now it's far enough from this whole documentary stuff that I can say this because to say this, I think at that time, you know, seven, at this time, seven months ago, um, you know, might've sounded like insensitive or I don't know. I don't even know what the right word I'm looking for is, but you know, we were, it was just, you guys we were, were there trying to make sure that people were okay. Like it felt, I don't know. It felt meaningful. At well, the time. okay. So Here's kind of how I see that. Like, you know how people were talking a little for a while about going after like the models? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So that, that was always seemed, always seemed a little crazy to me just because, you know, I know that if I get called in to audition for some commercial and I'm actually booked for it, I, first of all, I'm booked by a casting director, not the CEO of that company. I don't know anything about the company. I mean, it's not my that's not what I'm being hired yeah. for. And in a way, you guys, now you had more of an inside look a little bit, but really it's the same principle of, you know, you're being brought in to do a job. You know, you don't, you don't know how, when you came in, you didn't actually know how long they'd been working on it. You didn't know like what condition it was in and then you did your best. So it's not like, I, I can see why you'd say people might see it as insensitive, but you know, really... I feel like everyone is a victim here of Billy, a Billy and whoever knew what the real situation was. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with that, with that description too. And I think that's something that the documentaries really honed in on was Billy is his villain, but it almost objectifies him or puts him a little bit on the pedestal as well. Right. It's like this weird thing because I don't know if he's this like genius mastermind. <laughs> um, he's like, he's a kid you mm-hmm. know, who, got in over his head and just, and flexed his morals, you know, to the extreme to survive. And well, I I think, I don't know. There's a part in the documentary. I think it might've been when they were actually just like down when like Ja Rule and Billy and the models were down there just partying where Billy actually says, 
to his friends, we're selling a pipe dream to your average loser. Yeah. Yeah. He's, well, he was an asshole. There's no doubt about that. But he says that uh-huh. knowing he's being taped. So that to me actually says, you know, in a way he kind of was just, you know, it's exactly what you said. He's just this, this kid who's, who kind of thinks he's so cool and so rich and so smart. And he's really just selling an invisible product, sometimes literally. I mean, like selling these villas that don't exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the real shocker was when I, when I, you know, I hadn't spoken to the director after our interview and he, he told me, you're never going to believe this footage that we have. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you have to come in and see this. So I was in New York and I went to, um, you know, the production house and I saw what became that VIP access footage. Oh yeah. And I think that's really what answered any question of like the character of Billy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he, the fact that he was clearly defrauding people by selling, you know, Taylor Swift meet and greets and Victoria's secret after party, um, passes and things like that, that he didn't actually hold. No, none of it didn't exist. I mean that I think, yeah, you're right. Like that makes it obvious. But even with magnesis, it's because like in a way, even when you, even if it's a negative, when you, you know, it's like similar to what we do with our president, you know, you empower people when you, when you put them on this, this pedestal, even if it's negative attention that you're giving them. Mm -hmm. So like the genius mastermind narrative is, well, I don't know if it does more harm than good. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would consider him genius. I think the genius (laughs) <laughs> the, well, I think that that was, doesn't get caught. that was, kind, well, that was kind of his kind of his, he kind of gave off this aura of looking like this genius entrepreneur, but really he was selling nothing like he was selling. Yeah. I mean, I guess if there was anything genius about him, it was a, his way to get people to believe in him and invest in him. I mean, he had real investors yeah. giving him real money, you oh, know, yeah, real, I mean, huge amounts of money, which is that's, and, um, I guess that's his talent, quote unquote. Well, Josh, you know, Josh Wolf is, I think he's a New York based venture capitalist with Lux Capital. And he, you know, he was on a podcast recently, there a few months ago that I listened to and loved where he was talking to Shane Parrish about, you know, the characteristics that he looks for in entrepreneurs. And he said, you know, look, the, the best indicator of a successful entrepreneur is their ability to tell a good story. Hmm. And the best entrepreneurs are all, are the best storytellers. But here's the rub. The best con artists are also the best storytellers. (laughs) Right. So, you know, our job is to kind of tell the difference between the two. And I think that's, that's really what it is, right? Like even, and I think this is part of like a bigger trend as you, as you nailed, right? Theranos, WeWork, I think more will come out um, in the near future. It's just kind of like self-referential kind of capital flowing through the system from Right. Well, you know, and it's, it's crazy. About two days after viewing the documentary, I was attending this event at the glass house here in New York. And of all people, Ja Rule was there now. Mm. And it was crazy. I mean, seriously, I just seen the documentary and here he was, you know, being himself, living it up, taking selfies, all that stuff. And I thought to myself, ah, I mean, that was tough. I mean, talk about someone who I felt. Well, he just came out with, I was going to ask you why we're talking about this, you know, now this late in the game, but you know, why you wanted me to come on. I'm curious, but, um, <laughs> well, Jod did just happen to release a song called fire. 
Did he? I read about this. Yeah, I read about this yesterday or two days ago. Huh. He has a song called Fire. I haven't listened to it. Me neither. I, I wonder how many people have. <laughs> but do you, because you actually, I think I heard some uh, show you were on where you said that you kind of have sympathy for Jaw. Do you feel like he was a victim as well? Like he was, he didn't actually know as much as it maybe people think? Well, now that it's kind of all cleared up for him, you know, and he didn't get off, he, did, he got off like fine, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have as much sympathy for him. Right. Um, you know, if he was going to get roped into criminal activity for this, I would have felt sorry for him because I just think he had no idea. You know, it was like his role was similar to that of, at least from what I could tell, and I wasn't really involved with the Fire app company. So, you know, there was that one phone call that they recorded. Right. Where he said, like, it's it's not fraud, it's false marketing. And I think, right. you know, he really put his foot in his mouth with that. <laughs> but, like, from the perspective of the festival, like, the man was, you know, he came to the island once and was, like, riding around on jet skis all day and, like, gave a pep talk. Right? So he was like, kind of like a brand was, ambassador. Yeah, like, in some ways, he was, he was, sim- it was, his role was similar to the, the, the influencers and the models that you mentioned. You know, and... I mean, not to this extent, but I also find it fascinating that everybody wanted to go after the models and influencers, but nobody wanted to go after the artists because you, you know, what's the difference? You put your, you put your name on an event. You don't really know what's happening for the event, whether you're in the, you're in the marketing campaign or you're on the marketing materials. I thought that was an interesting distinction that people seem to make. Yeah. I think people are just so desperate for somebody to blame, somebody to kind of get revenge on. I mean, really? Well, that's the irony of the whole thing, too, because this not irony, but like the story was built on, you know, envy Mm -hmm. and it was kind of torn down by schadenfreude. (laughs) And it just, in my opinion, what's most fascinating about fire is not even the Billy character. It's really it's really its place in kind of the the current zeitgeist of um, the types of emotions that drive the content that gets picked up on by media. Right. Social media and otherwise. It's like, it's completely driven by our base emotion. Tristan Harris calls it a race to the bottom of the brainstem. <laughs> you know, like, it's just, it's just the stuff that works is the stuff that, that gets us enraged or the stuff that makes us desire. And this, this was just like the perfect representation of that um, phenomenon. Right. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Mark Weinstein of the Fire Festival and the Fire documentary. So, did you? So, after Billy disappeared, did you talk to him at all between the that day of the guests arriving? No, I haven't spoken to Billy since he left. I sent him an email. I was like, you know, this is the work that I did. This is what you owe me. Here's your Bye bill. Now. Goodbye. So, yeah. If, I mean, but a few weeks it. later, after the festival, the FBI comes knocking on your parents' door. Um. Turns out, yeah, yeah. turns out Billy wasn't just an overly ambitious guy with delusions of grandeur. He was actually committing federal crime, I mean, wire fraud. He'd been defrauding investors. Yeah. Were you surprised to hear all that? No, I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the documentary, but I, um, you know, the cruise ship that we got offered to bring 200 some odd people back to Miami the day that we were trying to get people on planes and we weren't sure if we would have enough planes to do runs for everyone. And so, um, you know, we were kind of in panic mode and he mm-hmm. said he'd do it. And I, you know, was like, okay, this is a good opportunity. And through one of the production managers, um, sent the message out to Billy who was, I don't know where he was, but, um, you know, 
Steve call came back like, yeah, let's do it. Tell him we'll send him a wire. And the owner of the cruise was like, absolutely not. I need cash in the bank by 5 PM. Otherwise it's not going to happen. I said, why? So the last time we got a wire from Billy, it came, you know, a week too late. And the wire compromise, the wire transaction number was different than the one that we had been sent. Which means. So it was at that point, it was clear that what Billy was doing was he was cutting and pasting, you know, like a screen, at least this is what I think was happening. A screen comes up, the wire is about to send. It gives you all the details and then you have to click send. I think he'd screenshot that, cut it and show like wire, wire sent with the details um, without actually ever sending it. Yeah. That means just hoping that he would be able to get more money flowing in. Was that, but when they, okay. So when that realization kind of hit you, were you like, holy shit, this is so much bigger than I thought. So much worse than I yeah, thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just it was pretty bad. And pieces started coming together, you know, after the event as well. Hearing other stories of people that hadn't been paid and houses that hadn't been paid that thought they were sent money. And, you know, the Wi-Fi company had an issue. So Jesus. No, I wasn't I, was, I wasn't that surprised. That's why when, you know, the FBI contacted me, I was like, yeah, of course I'll cooperate and send you everything right you know i don't have anything to hide and one thing people kind of tend to forget is so fire media basically dissolved after that so all those people who had been working on the app were just out of a job yeah 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 you know out of a job countless production staff that had spent weeks on site you know spent money on their travel things like that no no compensation all the people on the island, no compensation. So there was, you know, there was a pretty, pretty big negative impact from the whole thing. Were your parents surprised to get a knock on their door and have FBI agents looking for their son? Uh, they weren't there at the time. So oh. it, was, uh, <laughs> it was okay. okay. I'm sure they're, they've been surprised by the whole thing anyways, though. <laughs> so. you, you were born in, you're from <laughs> New York, aren't you? Yeah, I'm from New York. Okay. So since this has all gone down, You've moved on with your life. You are currently in venture capital and you have your own podcast, right? Yeah. It's uh, the Look Up podcast. Yeah. I started a podcast called Look Up um, after the documentary. And what's what's uh, that kind of focused on? So Look Up, uh, you know, in August 17, after fire, and one of the ways that I met the documentary producer was I wrote this piece called Lessons from the Fire. Mm -hmm. um, and I was going to publish it with um, a company that actually called Nike.com that ended up releasing my name to the media, even though they said it, everything was on a no-names basis. So I decided not to publish with them, but it's another story. Um, and so I published it to Medium, and it kind of just sat there, um, you know, because nobody knew about Fire or really cared that much at the time. And it was basically just this exploration of what I had mentioned earlier, which was like, what is it? that fire can teach us in kind of the broader context of, of our culture or of our cultural moment. And my assessment was, you know, this was also pre kind of the, the criminal, you know, allegations against Billy, even though I had a sense there were some bad things going on, but I was basically evaluating to what extent are we all like Billy and to what extent do we kind of present this, these avatars of ourselves in our online world, um, that are just not a, a full representation of, of everything that's going on behind the scenes or, 
not even a real representation of how things are happening in our lives. And, um, and, you know, I, I wanted to explore that on the podcast. Like I wanted to explore, uh, the, what I now call the attention economy and all of the kind of, uh, unforeseen consequences of, of what social media has become today. And so that's what look up represents. You know, we all spend so much time looking down at our phones, myself included, right. um, that, you know, it's, I, I want to offer people kind of a clear, crisp view of every, every, in every way, how we're being, um, you know, how our consciousness and our attention is being guided and potentially manipulated by, you know, by these platforms. Because that is, and I think you mentioned this at some point, uh, social media is how fire caught on and it's kind of how fire, you know, lived as long as it did. And it's also how fire was exposed as, you know, a sham. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time, but I think the center for humane technology and the work that they're doing Mm -hmm. is just a clear, you know, it's, it's so clear that this problem is real, right? Like what it's doing to our politics, um, you know, just the tribalism and rage that gets stirred, Mm -hmm. um, online, the envy and jealousy, the mass depression. Uh, I don't, I don't think these are technology issues. I think they're human issues that are massively exacerbated by the technology that we use. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when left unchecked or at least unexplored, there's damaging consequences. So that was kind of the initial intention of look up was to explore those subjects, to talk to people that researchers and entrepreneurs on the front lines trying to make a change. Um, and now I'm kind of broadening out into, into other subjects as well. Nice. And that's the look up podcast. I'm sure people can find it on, uh, Apple podcasts and Spotify and anywhere podcasts are. One thing I wanted to ask you about because I forgot to mention it. So there were these two documentaries that came out almost same week. And the Hulu documentary, you, I think, were contacted about, but you didn't want to participate in, for one reason, I think, is because Billy was paid to be in it. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So it came to my attention. They were trying to reach out to a bunch of production staff. They finally reached out to me. I had already heard that they had a contract with Billy. They paid him um, for his life rights. Hmm. You know, I asked the question very directly. Um, did you pay Billy? They kind of skirted the issue and said they they didn't pay him for the interview. And I was like, well, did you pay him? And then they explained what a life right deal is. So if Billy writes a book, if Billy, you know, this Prometheus got a fire book that he wants to write or whatever. Um, what? Story is there. He wants to do that? Oh, yeah. There was, uh, there was news like six months ago that Billy was writing a book from prison called Prometheus got a fire and oh. spelled Prometheus with a Y. Oh, for um, God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. You can't make this shit up, man. I mean, but that is like <laughs> clinical narcissism. Ugh. Jesus. Yeah, but you know what? It gets rewarded. Well, it gets, it gets it gets fantasized on via documentary, right? Like yeah. we make we make heroes out of villains and vice versa. But at least he's like, in prison. I mean, like when you mentioned the president, that's the case I can't get over because I do, and I don't, you know, necessarily mean to make this political, but I do feel like he is very much in that same vein of kind of just saying how great he is and saying he does all these unbelievable things, saying things that are just stupid, but also false. And at least, (laughs) at least Billy's in jail. 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> but in both instances, right, the media, yeah. the media, you know, like what the famous line, there's no such thing as bad press. Right. Like, I think that's what both of these people live by. Like that's Billy's mantra, essentially, right? Film me doing, film me defrauding customers. He, I want to capture everything. Well, he often would <laughs> hire, he would bring people in. He hired, or I don't know if he hired, he had no money to pay them. But towards the end of the documentary, you know, he brings people in to film him committing a, yeah. that VIP thing. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's absurd. Um, but yeah, so. <laughs> Mental condition. It's, it's a case wild. study. A case study of narcissism and delusion. But with Trump, it's, it is crazy. It does scare me a little bit because you're right. It does look like you can become famous. You can become kind of lionized. Hell, you could be the president of the United States for being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think like this has been written about, but I think something, you know, Trump was prepared for all of this via the apprentice. Yeah. Like he, he was able to kind of craft this identity for himself through media. And that's one of the interesting things about having experienced these two documentaries and to see the reaction to them and the way that they both told the same story, but there was a different set of heroes and villains. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, you know, the director of fire, the Netflix one has four and a half hours of footage from our interview. I also am well aware that he could have portrayed me any way that he wanted to. Um, anybody, you know, can become the villain or the hero in in our kind of modern media cycle sure. quotes are taking out of context um you know it's just that's why i love podcasts because i think there's so much more nuance and and you know rationality around like around that fact that life is much more nuanced than a than a headline or a soundbite right and that's kind of you know partially what we talk about on look up as well is like how do we how do we go back to a world where there's like there's common where we're finding common ground or move forward to a world where we're finding common ground. Definitely. Well, okay. So to kind of wrap up here, have you, I know you're working in venture capital, but are you kind of, have you kind of shunned off the uh, world of event planning and music festivals and all that stuff? Or do you think maybe you'll dabble in it again someday? Or are you kind of spurned? Well, never say never, but um, you know, it's just a really, really tough business. I mean, the biggest the biggest challenge with, with events is the weather is entirely out of your control. Mm -hmm. So you can work so, so, so hard and then you have a weather event and it just ruins everything. We're talking about like spending a year planning a three-day festival and all of your work gone, right? Um, and the insurance is really costly and often doesn't pay out. So that in and of itself is like... You know, you want to work on businesses that you can control as many of the important variables as possible because there's already so much out of your control. Do you but think, I love events. Yeah. Events are, you know, you bring people together. It's like it's the opposite of our online world because it's this petri dish of, of cultures and people coming together around a shared passion or love of music or a time period, as in the case of 90s Fest, mm -hmm. or, you know, or food, as in the case of the infatuation festival in brooklyn so right. it's like it's the best you get to see the best of people it's like if you work at an ice cream shop <laughs> probably get to see you get to see mostly happy people yeah i mean who comes maybe to the ice cream shop angry <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a 
there's that there was a Louis C.K. sketch about um, him waiting in line at a cin- at a, a Cinnabon. Oh God, um, which I I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and just hating how, himself. How he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like you know, oh, I'm the. It's like you ever been on one of those lines? It's actually um, a lot of sad people. So I don't know. Who knows? Maybe working in an ice cream shop is great. Maybe it's not. Do but you, events are great. Do you That's think? The point. <laughs> Bottom line, events are great. Yeah, you see I'm people rambling. in person. Shut me off. Well, oh, no, I was just going to say, so do you think, though, that moving forward, having been through this whole experience, do you think that you'll be able to recognize kind of a bullshitter uh, easier? Do you know what to look out for? Yeah. I mean, look, I, it's like that's like inviting as many really, really high quality bullshitters as possible to my doorstep. <laughs> Like I can cite a bullshitter. Then they're like, all right. Well, like, well so. everyone's a bullshitter to um, some extent. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I think there's certain things to look out for, but I would argue that they're more. Impo- it's more important to look inward um, at the way that you're interacting with people. So, like, you know, I, I wrote a little bit about this as well, and, and there's really, in my opinion, two things. One is if you're fixated on an outcome or a desire. So if that desire is I want to be you know, rich. Okay. That's something that's, that someone can take advantage of because you're really focused on that. Mm -hmm. If if the desire is I want to be famous or successful, or I want, I, you know, you really want something, you lose track of your, your environment when you kind of get hyper-focused on an outcome or attached to an outcome. Um, That's number one. And then number two is, um, uh, number two is basically like, trusting yourself right so like if you're if you're in a really challenging um time in your life it's much easier to get calmed um you know you you we often like want to give responsibility over our our decisions to other people making choices is hard uh so i think you know it's easy to lose faith in yourself and then a con artist can kind of swoop in and take advantage of that make themselves an authority figure in your life um you know, anybody can become an authority figure. Like we, we do it all the time. We're looking for, we're looking for prescription, looking for advice, mm-hmm. you know, how, how to lose weight, how to, you know, how to um, you know, eat right, how to get the next best job, how to sell a thousand copies of your record or how to what, gain followers, how to gain followers, you know, like there's no shortage of information products out there. That's the new craze. Sign up with this email, you'll get the free first edition. And then it's like all of a sudden you're paying $150 a month to for someone to tell you how to be the best version of yourself. <laughs> um, right. We all we all want that guru. I mean, look, it's I'm 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 a yoga instructor as well. And like I saw firsthand how I've seen firsthand how, you know, people don't go to yoga teacher training if they're not searching for something. Mm-hmm. For for the most part, right? So Look at these documentaries. Look at Wild Wild Country. Look at the new Bikram documentary. Yeah, was... these are similar situations. People go susceptible to to manipulation because they're searching for something. And if you have that hole, someone's going to come to try to fill it for you. Um, so it's. I think it's important. Like one again, one you know, move that fixation and attachment to outcomes, and then two, trust yourself. Right. Like look, look within yourself for answers. I think that's sound advice. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for, so much for being on the show. Uh, if people should look up the look up podcast. It's the look up podcast.com. You can find it uh, or follow Mark on Twitter. His handle is Wark Meinstein. That's W <laughs> W A R C 
M E I N S T E I N. Mark, I really do I appreciate. My friend gave me that name. Well, I was going to say, was that because Mark Weinstein was taken? <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, I think it might have been. And I was like, what should my Instagram handle be? Like fifteen years ago, or however long? Who knows? It feels like forever ago. I have to say, you know, you seem like because you're, you know, do the yoga and you're doing, you know, with community and consciousness and stuff, and yet you work in finance, which a lot of times people think, you know, the finance world is so right wing and right conservative and stuff. And it's a good, you know, I think you're a good example that it doesn't always have to be. And, you know, people knowing about the economy and money and stuff, it doesn't always mean that they're on the right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. On the right or, you know, or, or don't care about people, other people. Right. Right. Like that's actually, that's important to hold. Right. I think to be able to hold. Anyways, I've been talking too much, but, um, <laughs> but it's it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks well, thanks. I on. really do appreciate you taking the time, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll put all your uh, Instagram and Twitter stuff on our uh, Facebook page. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, thanks a lot. We've been talking to Mark Weinstein. He is featured heavily in the documentary "Fire: The Greatest Party That Never Happened" on Netflix, and it's just about time to say goodnight. But as I say at the end of every show, and I mean it more each week, apathy is the enemy. Apathy, more than anything else, is the real enemy. Watch the news, know what's going on, care about what's going on in the world, have an opinion, take some action, and maybe even make a change. For Radio Free Brooklyn, this has been the next best thing. And that's all, and okay, we'll be back. Uh.